There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline and they're selling razor blades and mirrors in the street. Joining me is the girl who is a hurricane in the back of her throat. It's Dolly Alderton. Hello. Hi. This, in a way, has been prepped for for a week and in another way for five years. And in another way, my whole life. (laughs) Okay, so you were born. I was born. Shortly after you started wanking over Robbie Williams. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And then some 20 odd years later, we met... And uh, I remember the first one of our first like conversations where we really it felt like a real brain trust mm. was uh, one of us saying, "Do you remember how big a deal escapology was? Mm. And do you know how nobody talks about it anymore at all? Mm. So it's for years we were like, let's talk about escapology, but now we've become so obsessed with Robbie Williams post documentary." Mm. That it's this is just a Robbie Williams episode now. Well, interestingly, I went back and searched in our WhatsApp. Yes. It's the great archivist. My yes. favourite thing to do, <laughs> Robbie Williams, to find the first like digital conversations we had about it. Yeah. And um, it became like, initially we were just talking about escapology and we were talking about yeah. like music and generally good pop songs. And then Robbie became in, entrenched in this other conversation that we had back in 2019 and we continue to have, which was about defending... Overdogs. Overdogs. Mm-hmm. So um, the person we were talking about, where I found us talking about Robbie Williams for the first time on WhatsApp, mm-hmm. the original person that we were talking about and defending, it turns out was um, an extremely problematic person and we were very much on the wrong side of history. <laughs> oh, so no. So I won't mention who that one was. But it, when we were defending... <laughs> we were... Turns out everyone was right to really dislike them. Yeah, it turns out that was not a case where <laughs> rooting for the overdog... Worked. We're going to have so many guesses in my DMs, I, and I'm not going to confirm to anyone. I'm not going to confirm. Thank God we never. Thank God we never did a pot, a sentimental <laughs> on that person. On that person. Um, and we were talking about him. We were talking about Lena Dunham. We were talking. I think we've talked about Jerry Halliwell in these terms as well. Mm. Of what is it to for the very thing that makes you famous for be the thing that makes it kind of unbearable mm-hmm. to you. So these people that get fame very, very young, that obviously have this enormous amount of talent, who are incredibly vulnerable, mm. but who for a short period when they first become famous, they can't stop sharing. They yeah. can't stop yeah. themselves. Can't stop talking. They can't stop talking and they can't stop themselves They can't stop getting photographed. They can't stop meeting other famous people. They can't stop talking about having met that famous person. They yeah. just like can't. And usually because they're very young as well. Yeah. And they're at an age where they're breaking away from their parents naturally. And so they're not going to take guidance there. They're, they're surrounded by sort of new parent figures who are just exploiting them for money. Mm. And everybody wants to have sex with them. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. it's amazing. Like, lots of famous people die. It's amazing more famous people don't die. I totally agree with that and when Caroline and I are now on our second watch of the Robbie documentary (laughs) and when we were watching it together last week it is amazing to me 
that he survived that. And he has survived it as like a pretty kooky fellow <laughs> when you see him now. Yeah. He's definitely a quirky person. He definitely has some sort of, some conspiracies. Mm-hmm. He definitely he but he looks like he's survived something. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing he survived, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think about this all the time when I consider that all of the Spice Girls are still alive. Yeah. Like, how? <laughs> I think they all have good parents. Yeah. Aw. I always remember you saying when you watched that Adele program, mm-hmm. Adele when she released 30. Oh, she did that really 70s sort of like TV special, like an yeah. audience with Adele and Alan Carr is going to stand up and tell a joke. Yeah, kind of and thing. Emma Thompson's going to have a boogie in the, oh, in the aisles. I've never loved Adele more than that press sort of round for her last album. Whoever was doing her press really knew who Adele's audience was with that. Because like, mm-hmm. I remember everyone being like, why is Adele doing like an ITV special? Yeah, and It's like, this is who Adele is. She's an old school entertainer mm-hmm. who speaks to... Middle England, so this yeah. is the perfect format for her. And I remember you watching it, and you—you're not a massive Adele fan, but you said you were in tears throughout yeah. because it felt like a celebration of all the people around her who have made sure that she becomes the biggest pop star in the world yeah. and is safe and happy. And you yeah. said it just felt like it was an homage and a celebration of like, look what we all did together. We mm. like, and I just thought that was... <laughs> I'm like awing my own sentiment <laughs> from three years ago. <laughs> but I, I thought that was such a, a smart thing. Like, and that's what I was really moved by that when I watched the Billie Eilish documentary, mm. when I heard her parents talking about their, their, their who have quite a managerial relationship to her mm. and their relationship to her and her music is not to her success. It's to how can we do literally everything and anything we can how can we study every story of a person who gets fame and notoriety and success really really young how can we study the mistakes and Mm -hmm. the the right choices to make sure that our child can survive this and this is the thing i mean we'll get deeper into robbie in a second but um it's kind of in my opinion, the case for Nepo babies. Mm. If you, because I think Billy's parents are in the entertainment industry. I think mm. one of their parents is an actor. And um, I think when people hear those stories, they immediately roll their eyes and think, like, oh, well, of course, it's like this sort of completely botched system. And it is when you hear that, like, you know, someone's parents is like, you know, the, the heir to the Bloomingdale's fortune or whatever. Yeah. You're like, this does feel rigged. But on the other hand, when I look at like Jared Apatow's kids mm. or Billie Eilish or someone, it's like, yeah, you need someone who's your parent who doesn't care about the entertainment industry because mm. they just know it's an, an industry that's used to prey on people. And that's very dangerous, you yeah. know? Whereas if you get like parents who have very sort of weak self-esteem, huge egos, no money. Or who love the movies. Or love the movies. Who are just excited by celebrity. Yeah, that, that's, that is the sort of the death rattle for yeah. a child star gone wrong. And to bring it back to Robbie, it really occurred to me as we were preparing for this that like this is a musician, a, ma- a male musician, who a pop star, who the bulk of his songs, his really famous songs, mm. Discounting Angels... Their songs are about fame. Yeah. They're about fame. They're about notoriety. They're about fame's fame's trauma, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And that is because there is so little of his life that isn't touched by fame. There's basically 15 years Mm. of Robbie Williams' life where he's not famous. He's essentially a child star. Yeah. We don't really think of him that way, but he's kind of the male British Judy Garland. Like, he's just this child who was, like, put through the ringer. And because... I think what I'm interested in as well is because we don't really cover young men and men in this podcast very often. 
the disadvantages of being a male star is that I do think people just sort of leave you to do your own thing a bit. Mm. I like there, yes, there is a situation where with with female stars where people are so quick to say you've gone off the rails, so quick to say you're a total bitch, so quick to say you're anything. But with male stars, they they are left to spin out mm. in this way that I find very scary and happened to Robbie very quickly. Mm. And it's interesting that there was a point in his career where the shadowy figure of Jonathan Wilkes appears. Yeah. <laughs> who's, this, who's this like... Because you, did you know who he was? No, I had to have Gavin explain who Jonathan Wilkes was to me. It's it's like a level... Caroline is quite amazing. You and Monica Heisey are like yeah. this. You are both quite amazing at being completely fluent in mm-hmm. the most random... Totally. ...British culture. But even Jonathan Wilkes... Like, I mean, I think yeah. most of my friends would struggle to tell you who Jonathan Wilkes Lauren is. Lauren Bravo tried to explain to me yesterday and she said he, he would be in the jungle. I was like, oh, oh okay. 100% <laughs> he would be in the jungle. He's basically like fit, tall friend from mm-hmm. Stoke-on-Trent mm-hmm. who was like mates with Robbie Williams and was sort of a musician and entertainer. Mm-hmm. Didn't play any instruments but was just like a bit croonery who started just kind of appearing as Robbie's sidekick a bit um, when in I would probably say from like escapology onwards mm-hmm. maybe right before um, which was the from that moment that's when things started to go really wrong for Robbie and I think it was it's interesting how much you see a pattern with famous people mm. that they someone from their past and someone from their childhood someone that remind a piece of home ends up becoming sort of a, a peer but kind of an employee yes and is always around them like it's kind of like a safety blanket because throughout all that footage that you see with Robbie you don't see any friends or family yeah at all like not once the only time you see someone from his past is when suddenly it feels like things are looking really fragile for him and mm. then Jonathan Wilkes pops up and suddenly they're doing loads of performances together and they're on the road together. So are you calling Jonathan Wilkes a stabilising influence or a sign that things have gone wrong? I think both. Wow. Yeah. And I th- Things have gone so wrong that we need to bring in someone who you just like recognise from but then primary in- school. But interestingly, I was reading this book about Dolly Parton's, the history of Dolly Parton's wardrobe. Oh. It's so good. Lovely. Behind the seams, my life in rhinestones. Oh. Highly recommend. Um, I was reading that this weekend and there's, and she wrote it and her assistant is her best friend from primary school. Always has been. Yeah. So is it a sign of, the, is it a protective, is it, is it actually, because it is, I remember Catelyn Moran saying that that's something she's learned from famous people, mm. that they nearly always have someone in their entourage who is their, a really old friend from home or a family member. Yeah. God, it is, and I guess I suppose the health of that completely depends on the health of said friend, right? Yeah, exactly. Because I'm sure loads of people, like I, like that, have you ever seen that clip of Amy Winehouse um, singing happy birthday with her friends when she's 14? Mm. And it's just, it's so gorgeous. Oh God, yeah. And all those people stayed with her her whole life and they're apparent, they're all lovely North London girls or whatever yeah. and, you know, there's at a certain point there's no friendship strong enough to save you kind yeah. of thing. But anyway... Uh, into Robbie. <laughs> it's been a long uh, intro. I, I want to tell a story about us and last week and oh, Dublin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're promoting Good Material at the moment, your mm-hmm. latest novel, which mm-hmm. is also about a uh, inflated, fragile male ego. But yeah. this, this guy just isn't famous, but yeah. probably feels like he should be as famous as Robbie Williams. Yes. <laughs> um, and we were in Ireland last week. Uh, I did your Dublin show in Vicar Street with you. 
and I did your Belfast show at the Ulster Hall and we really did feel like rock stars. I thought you were going to say it felt like Robbie and Jonathan Wilkes. Yeah, we, oh my God, we were 100% Robbie and Jonathan Wilkes. I'm Jonathan Wilkes. Oh no, I'm going to the jungle. We take turns to be Jonathan Wilkes. Okay. When you're promoting something next time, I'll be yeah. Jonathan Wilkes. Okay. We all need a Jonathan Wilkes. Be the Jonathan Wilkes you wish to see in the world. Um, and we were so obsessed with the Robbie Williams documentary at that point where we just, um, we insisted that on our walk on and walk off music on stage that it would be um, Let Me Entertain You and and Candy, which we're about to talk about in a minute. And uh, and and then we, we especially in Vicker Street, we had this thing where we were like, we just kept on bringing up the Robbie Williams documentary. And it was that kind of thing where... It was funny to us at first and mm. then we kind of felt the audience get fed up with it. They did get fed up with it. And then we pushed it more and then it was like <laughs> everyone was in on the joke kind of. Do you know what I mean? You have to sort of keep pushing past the point where everyone's annoyed yeah. by it. And, and that then- is what I would say as well about the melody of Candy. <laughs> Just at the moment when you feel like you're going to vomit because you can't listen to that fucking stupid song anymore that's when you have to listen to it one more time and you realise it's the greatest song ever recorded <laughs> the, great song, uh, the great Eurovision hit that never was so true <laughs> um, and then sorry I have to tell the story because I find it so funny <laughs> um, the your event organisers put us up in this lovely hotel in Dublin that had a spa complex in the basement and we the morning after we had this lovely long swim and sauna and steam and then we were just sitting around in the dressing room in our wet togs or whatever and we just we realised that like the entire time we'd been sitting there chatting they were playing a Robbie Williams medley kind of thing all the best hits and we were just sat there like our eyes agog being like where are the cameras like oh my god someone from the hotel reception must have been at the show last night must have seen us come into the spa and it's like playing these greatest hits like for us because it's like 11am on a Tuesday nobody else is down here and it felt so cool and then <laughs> and we were obsessed and then as we were checking out you were like <laughs> you tell the story it's so embarrassing I just was like uh, <clears throat> thanks so much I had a lovely stay and this was one of them gave me the lead because the nice girl behind the, behind the desk said did you have a good show last night and gave yeah. me like a wink and I was like yes now on that like, <laughs> yes and further and I was like were any of you guys at the show and they were just like Obviously not. No, we were not at your show. And they said, why? I was like, there's just, there was a big Robbie Williams theme last yeah. night um, in the show. And since we've woken up, there's just been Robbie Williams music everywhere. So we were just wondering if someone may have like orchestrated that as, as a bit of a treat for us. <laughs> she looked at me like I was the biggest fantasist. <laughs> She'd ever met. She was like, no, well, I mean, everyone's been listening to a lot of Robbie Williams since the documentary came out, haven't they? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Like, Which in like itself she is quite was, a Robbie Wally Williams Oh my god, conspiracy. like she was calmly explaining to you how Santa <laughs> visits every house. Like it was just so mortifying that we were like, this is for us. We're in the Truman Show. <laughs> but it is weird because I feel like we haven't heard Robbie Williams songs for yeah. so long. And now they're everywhere. By everywhere, I mean my Sonos system at home. And in the spas we visit. And in the spas we visit. <laughs> Uh, and one one uh, criticism I had of the documentary, which I loved, and I'm sure we'll refer to a lot, is for me, not enough about the music. No. And today, we're going to talk a lot about that music. Yeah. And the yeah. music is so good. It's so good. And also, when you look at... 
and so clever and and yeah. and like musically and texturally makes so many interesting references totally. always changing and and lyrically always exciting yeah and this is obviously a very hacky thing to say but i th- i think it has to be said in relation to robbie williams i think that he is absolutely a symbol of an artist who we have we sometimes make the mistake that if billions of people enjoy their work then it yeah. is artless yeah <laughs> whereas actually it's like if if hundreds of thousands of people are watching your film or reading your book or listening to mm. your songs there's a, it's not by accident like there's there's a reason there's a reason why there's a huge amount of thought that goes into yeah, that totally otherwise everyone would be making stuff that everyone listens to like everyone wants to make stuff that is consumed by mass audiences no one wants to be niche like, yeah. an underground hit who has who people you know it's like a cult I think we think we want that but we don't people want to make money from what they make yeah so I think there's a reason why so much and also Robbie is such a huge personality but there's a reason why his music is just not spoken about at all really yeah about how incredible those songs are and they will be incredible forever it's so interesting isn't it these these various points in the documentary where like and it's again it sounds so hacky and trite to say but um he is so wounded by say something the enemy has written about him or mm. or the guardian or there's this like showbiz column that's running in the sun that like he gets imported to milan at a certain mm. point mm. and it's like he's like and he was like oh this journalist victoria something or other she really hated me she really came for me i was like the enemy doesn't it barely exists anymore no, no. this victoria woman who gives a fuck like all mm. these people all of this like shite that just gets churned around like basically shoveling snow around the pop culture landscape because something has to get printed all fades away and all that stays are the songs yeah but it's the kind of thing that stops people from making music it is and actually I watched the first time I watched the documentary it was with someone who has a proper job who <laughs> not like us yes our, our chattering woman job our silly lady job um <laughs> He has like a proper job in finance and we were watching that that um, section where he gets that rude box. Mm. Enemy do the rude box review, mm. which is just this horrendous, horrendous review. And it's before he goes on stage in, I can't remember where, Leeds, I think. And he is so, so upset that he just feels so self-conscious like he can't mm. perform. And I just cried throughout that. And he yeah. gets on stage and there are these like hundreds of thousands of people. And you look at his face and he just feels like a blagger and like he's lied to them and like yeah. he's got no talent. And it's he's it's shameful that he's been given this platform. And I just fucking, I just know that feeling so well. And the person I was watching it with was like, I don't understand why this one review mm. is the thing he takes seriously when he's literally standing in front of people screaming his name. And mm. that's why can't that be the proof? of his yeah. talent rather than this one thing with this one person that diminishes it and I was like yeah but the point is this is why people in finance don't make music <laughs> that's not how an artistic brain is wired like yeah. that's not how a creative brain is wired if you're someone who wants to make things to make people like you and to entertain people and to leave your mark in the world and to feel connected to people Mm. you're not someone who can be pragmatic about that stuff you're someone who probably has a secret very shameful very low opinion of themselves and if your peer group and nothing defines a musical peer group like the voice of a peer group Mm. than the enemy at that time at that time now i think if we had an 18 year old in here we'd have to explain what the enemy was yeah you know but I totally understand why that one voice would yeah. be the voice that ratifies 
your secret theory about yourself. Yeah. Oh and God, I definitely. I, I, he also told me the person I was watching it with told me that I possibly overrelated <laughs> in a way that doesn't quite Gavin, doesn't quite reflect Gavin real life. Hates it when I overrelate to famous people on documentaries <laughs> because I have a somewhat popular podcast and forty thousand Instagram followers. I see no problem with that. I know, I'm just like I'm just being empathetic, and he was like, yeah, yeah, "Stop it! It's so unattractive to them." <laughs> They hate it. They and I, I. I guess I get. I guess I get it. <laughs> um, but like his opinion of himself is so low. Yeah, and it's, it really is. I'm going to bring it up because I know it makes us so angry. Uh, the Adam Buxton interview that he did. Mm, I don't think I can. I listened yeah. to it twice now. Mm. First out of interest, second out of rage. So interesting that episode because I love Adam Buxton. He's like my favourite podcaster. I listen to him every week. But I remember texting you after listening to that episode and feeling really wigged out by it because, again, overly identifying with Robbie. (laughs) I knew, and this was before I watched the documentary. Now I've watched the documentary. I know even more that I was right about this. Mm. He obviously has a group of people who live in his head from the 90s. To, To quote a great podcaster, Dolly Alderton, a sock puppet animated by his own self-loathing. Yeah. I think oh, what, God, I said that. Yeah, on the Sentimental and City ones. Wow, That's that great. was when that woman was really in my head, wasn't it? <laughs> Luckily, she died. <laughs> we still don't know why. The circumstances she disappeared. are still mysterious. <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, he obviously create, had these people in his head that represented coolness mm. and cleverness and everything that he felt like he wasn't. And that was definitely Adam Adam and Joe in the 90s mm-hmm. were a part of that. They were like what funny was, what cool was, what cult was, what clever was. Mm. And he obviously, apparently, I think Adam said that he really petitioned to go on the Adam Buxton podcast. Mm. And I think he... Yeah, his intro was like, yeah. I wouldn't normally accept someone like Robbie Williams on my podcast. Yeah. but uh, Because usually someone like Robbie Williams is looking to sell something. As if like that isn't the point of like having booking a guest on your podcast yeah, exactly. to begin with. Um, but Robbie reached out and pff, I said yes. It was like, yeah. it, it, just, it was unbearable. It was bad faith, I think. because. But what, what Adam wouldn't realise, and this is what I find so interesting about the argument between cult and commercial. If Adam Buxton was to listen to this, I'm sure that he would be mortified. And what he would say is, I don't have any power in that room. This is one of the biggest selling artists mm. in the world. I'm not, I'm allowed to, like, he would think that that was punching up. But yeah. what I know about Robbie is, that about Robbie, so I've really, really got carried away with myself. The room's already very warm with passion. I love it. Beads of sweat on the <laughs> leather Soho radio couch. Um, is that he saw that podcast episode as his opportunity to persuade Adam Buxton yeah. and therefore all of the 90s and everyone who he has felt has ever belittled him or disapproved yeah. of every him. Every clever Gen Xer. Every clever Gen Xer. It was his way of going, look, I like the same music as you. At one point he goes, mate, I really like David Bowie as well. And that he's like, and he starts slagging off his own songs on yeah. that podcast episode, which I was like, no, don't do that. Like, your songs are brilliant. You've got nothing to justify yeah. or apologise for. He talks about how he knows he's thick, how he knows he's got no talent, and he prostrates himself. And it's it's definitely his way of trying to like persuade Adam that he's as cool as him mm. and I just I know again I just know that feeling of like when you when I've felt like someone is not just against my work but against, against me as a sort of concept mm. where all I want to do is ring them and be like I promise you if we had a pint we'd get on <laughs> I 
swear, we've got all the same books on our shelves. Let me persuade you. You've read Iris Murdoch. I've read Iris Murdoch. <laughs> Was it the one that everyone's heard, heard of? Yes. Does that matter? No, no. we're the same. <laughs> so that's why, and I know now having watched the documentary, that's 100% what he was doing. And yeah. that's why it's so painful to listen to. But he even says it on that podcast where he, in the end, like, he's, I find him so funny. Yeah, I find, like, And like, the fact that, the idea that anyone would doubt that he writes his own songs is so strange to me. Because mm. he, this, and it's like, obviously, the, the cheeky chappy moniker or whatever, the sort of wry knowing silliness which is my favourite kind of sense of humour on any person yeah me too um, just really silly but really clever and mm. just uh, yeah, and he, Dolly Parton's got that vibe totally yeah. totally and maybe you need to to be that famous um, because everything is just so heightened and ridiculous around you that you need to be a bit silly about to, it to meet it yeah um, and he says in the beginning where Adam's a bit like well, why do you want to come on this podcast Robbie <laughs> kind of thing sorry I'm, so, I'm sorry Dan and Buxton now I'm being mean um <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, he was like, well, in that kind of like that sort of slow delivery that he sort of has now. He's like, well, I went on a podcast and I looked at the comments afterwards and people who thought I was a twat seemed to think I was quite nice afterwards. <laughs> and I thought if I do 10,000 podcasts, then ever, no one will think I'm a twat anymore. And I just found it so charming. I just love him. Because also, we all know that feeling, whether yeah. you're someone with a public profile or not, of like, how do I make sure that no one ever has a bad thought about me yeah. ever again? And to be transparent <laughs> I go that, to one London Review of Books party <laughs> and convince one person that I'm not a twat. If I go to all of them... <laughs> I just love him. I just love him. I just love him. <laughs> He's just the best. Do you think he will listen to this? Yeah, because you're on it. <laughs> Is this the moment where I tell my Robbie Williams story? I think you should. Okay, so as Caroline mentioned, and I actually haven't asked you about your masturbatory relationship to him and his oeuvre. Mm. Um, but basically between like the years 1998 and I would say 2003, mm. if my hands were ever in my pants... <laughs> Robbie Williams was in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that he would have left? He left to take that in when again? <clears throat> I was too young to take that. Yeah, same. Yeah, I had really no conception of them at all. But it's so funny because I'm, obviously I'm a bit older than you, but Farley is my best friend was really swept up in the take that thing. Mm. But she must have been so young. Yeah, she would have been about eight, I think, and she was still so either she was just like. I don't know, sexualized before I was. Or I think I was just so busy with the Spice Girls at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was the same because, like, obviously, because I'm Irish, Boys Own were so huge. Oh, yeah. And then Westlife. But I, and I think this is a lot to do with having brothers. I was so utterly uninterested in anything to do with boys at all. I would, yeah. I do not relate. I was just in the Spice Girls, yeah. really. And, like, the only boy I cared about was, like, the guy who played, like, the, the animated Dimitri in Anastasia. <laughs> Played by John Cusack. Did you have a wank about him? Yeah. Really? <laughs> I basically had a wank about everything between the ages of sort of 10 and 14. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so I had a very strong reaction to mm-hmm. Robbie Williams. I don't know what it was. Well, I do know what it was. I think it's a mix of a, like a baby face mm-hmm. and that he was naughty and I really like naughty yeah. boys and um, the lost boy thing. Mm-hmm. And his songs were just great. Yeah. Um, also, Robbie Williams, I think, has like the absolute perfect bod. Really? Just like that, 
that attainable teenage girl thing mm. of just like he looks like he does 50 press ups in the morning and he, but he also looks like he drinks pints and has like a bit of a squidgy tummy I just think that is that what, is the perfect it's the perfect thing. bod yeah um and so I was like very obsessed with him and his music and I had and the thing that I remember was like the main focus of my sexual desire was his snail trail, which mm-hmm. was a very like nineties thing that girls loved. Like so disappointing when you find out that boys that they men, don't really have it. They don't really have some teenage boys have it for a year. <laughs> and then it just spreads out to being a full covering. <laughs> A full bush, yeah. A full bush, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So the snail trail I just loved. Anyway, so I then kind of stopped listening to his music, I suppose, when I went to university and put the Robbie fantasies to bed when mm-hmm. he met Ida. Before that, I really was in with a chance. And then um, I was working on a Channel 4 sitcom called Fresh Meat about students. And I was the script assistant. I was 27. And script mm. assistant basically means buying sushi for the writers, printing out scripts, doing tiny editorial jobs here and there. But it was a bit of a, it was a great job, but it was like, you know, kind of some menial work. The Ida Field was cast as a professor like an Italian professor in Fresh Meat has an affair with one of the students. And it was quite a quick turnaround from casting to shooting. And they just moved over from LA and they needed to get the scripts to her, but they couldn't get them to her until Sunday. They were like, well, who's going to drop the scripts off on a Sunday in North London? At that point, I was living in Camden. My hand shot up. I'll deliver the scripts. They were like, great. So I poodle over to Primrose Hill on a Sunday to drop off these scripts, thinking I'm not going to meet them, obviously, but I'll just get to see the house. I've heard the story so many times and I'm still <laughs> wetting myself with excitement. <laughs> this is just a sidebar. The house that they were renting was, <laughs> was Michael Winner's house. He was dead at that point. And then I read later that they had to move out of the house because, of course, the ghost of Michael Winner was haunting the house anyway. Um so I dropped the scripts off with the security guard at the front. And then he was like, wait here. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just leaving the scripts. It was proper Devil Wears Prada. The table with the flowers. The table with the flowers stuff. Mm-hmm. Then he goes and he comes back and he's like, I would like to see you. So I was like, oh my fucking God. So I go into the house and they're like, she's upstairs on the, on the right. <clears throat> go up. And I'm like, hello. <laughs> and I hear her voice saying, come in. And I open the door. And it's Robbie Williams, completely naked in bed. Snail Ida, trail on display. Snail trail on display. Ida in her pyjamas. There's a gorgeous little toddler running around. There's a huge dog. And there's like a tiny little squidgy baby on her lap. I make small talk. They are so lovely. They're mm. so friendly. They're so sweet. Robbie says, do you like babies? I was like, I love babies. He was like, get in the bed. So I perch on the end of the bed. And it must be said in a completely non-sex way. Completely non-sex way. Not salty, not weird. Not at all. He was just... It was felt... there one part of your body that was like, am I about to get molested? Not at all. Okay. I wish that that... <laughs> I would love to be I molested love by to the Williams. I molested by them. No, it wasn't that at all. It felt like a, f- a morning with my like cousins. It felt like yeah. a family, like a kind of distant family where there's like this familiarity, which I also think someone who's been famous their whole life... Mm-hmm. That's often a thing that you notice that that they mm-hmm. are incredibly familiar with people, mm. um, and you know perhaps they trust too quickly. I don't know. Anyway, they they I sit on sit on the edge of the bed, try not to stare at his snail trail, um, which is just poking out over that. Also, he is, is his bottom half is obviously completely covered. He puts the baby on my lap, and I'm just like playing with this beautiful baby, um, oh. and then we just chat for like twenty. Things minutes. just happen to you. <laughs> 
Things just happen to you that don't happen to normal people. And then we chat for like 20 minutes and then off I went. Really, really good. Really good. Wow. Yeah. I love that. What is that about famous people and just kind of trust, like trusting everyone around them? You really, really see it with actors on film sets. It's like when with their makeup artists, with the crew, yeah. it's like they just decide that you're their, you're their family. And and is it kind of they sort of make their piece about like every conversation that people are going to have with me is going to be a little story and I just need to make my peace with that and move on from it? No, so here's the thing that's interesting. Robbie and Ida obviously thought that I was employed. Well, mm. I was employed by Channel 4. Mm-hmm. So that's in their heads. It's like, she's safe. She's in the she's family. She's in the family. She's the yeah. network. And at Very the time, mafia. <laughs> but I do think that's what people yeah. think when they. it's like, they're in the label, they're in the network, they're in the, you know, and that's what you feel on sets. I think they're like they're they're with the production company. Mm. It's fine. Um, and then I, the only time where there was like a moment of slight tension in that interaction was I just started a dating column for mm. the Sunday Times, mm-hmm. and they had the Sunday papers on their bed, and um, I said to them that I was in the, on the back of Star, and I could sense immediately they were a bit get like, her out, get her out, because I was like, oh no, she's she's a journalist. As we know, yeah. I have never been a journalist in my entire life. <laughs> As is much cover on this podcast. <laughs> Neither one of us have ever been a journalist. Um, but I think that that I think the distinctions are quite mm. um, are quite naive, actually, in a lot of famous people's heads of like press bad, yeah, people on the team good, mm. press unsafe, people on the team family. Y- yes, that's kind of the two categories of people. Yeah, people on the team and the press, and then there's a big mush of people who are just fans question mark in yeah. between <laughs> exactly. who don't really matter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what he didn't know. Is I was all three of those things. <laughs> <laughs> On the team, in the press, and fan exclamation point. Yeah. So anyway, I can absolutely verify that he is a delight. And I adored Ida. And they seemed utterly in love. You know what? In prepping for this podcast, and I've just I've just been having one of those weeks where I've had a lot of meetings and met a lot of people and everyone always asks like oh what's the next thing you're working on for the podcast and I always say Robbie and because I've been in these kind of a lot of media type meetings with sort of older people in the industry I've had quite a few people be like oh I met Robbie once and everybody loves him Mm. everybody nobody even people who don't like his music who find him a bit cringe who got sick of him when he was sort of like everywhere in the 2000s it's like yeah lovely guy (laughs) like I think he seems like a nice boy and I think his his like greatest sin if there is any is self-obsession which I think we can forgive because he, I read an interview with him once where he said I feel like the first 30 years of my life happened and I'm going to spend the next 30 trying to w- process it yeah and actually the, that level of fame like I remember even Elizabeth Gilbert saying this about when Eat Pro Love was adapted with Julia Roberts like her memoir about her life she said mm. she was like on set or at the premiere or mm. whatever and she said I still haven't understood what that was and I don't think I'll ever understand what that was. Yeah. Like her brain can't accept this thing that happened in her life, this fame, this, her story becoming Elizabeth this... Gilbert, another overdog we love. Another overdog I would die for. <laughs> um, and I think that that's why, like, that's a criticism of the documentary that it is so solipsistic and, mm-hmm. it's so, and he is so obsessed with what happened to him, what went wrong, what went right. 
But I think we can forgive him that because it's a fuckload to get your head around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there was definitely a lot missing from the documentary. Like, as you said, the family. Like, there was a like his dad didn't feature at all, and he's been quite an important figure yeah. in his work. Even like the videos, which are so iconic and so beautiful, not touched on at all. No. So much completely untouched. And I think, and oh, but in the it was made by Ridley Scott's production company. In its defense, I think they went they they went out to tell a very singular story where they were really telling a parable of what fame does to exactly young that. people yeah. and what it is like to be famous your whole life with and they were and it was almost like they wanted to tell a story like that they found Robbie because he's someone who's been obsessively cataloging his life with the, like like everything with mm. the miles and miles of footage like I think mm. of everything we didn't see if they if mm. that's like every single fight like every 5 minutes I was like how are we seeing this like how do we have this how do we have this footage and I think that that is proof that that was he was always trying to work out what was happening to him while it was happening yeah. Oh, that bit. We'll get into the music, but like that bit where he's in Jamaica and he's on the phone to Nicola Appleton oh, and he just pauses yeah. it and he just goes, I sound like I'm on the phone to my mum. Yeah. When he's so excitable talking about the view from the hotel. Yeah. I tell you what, I am looking at that place on my honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> because of the Robbie Williams. Yeah! <laughs> That's the stupidest reason to go somewhere on a honeymoon and I love it. Does Gav even need to be there? I think you, I think you go with a copy of Escapology. Well, annoyingly, flights to Jamaica from London at the moment are very truncated. So that's the only thing in my way. Um, God, Jamaica would be a perfect honeymoon. Yeah, yeah. My mom's best friend is Jamaican, and she's given me the link to <laughs> the link up to where to all the places in the Robbie documentary. I fully endorse this. I, I think don't mention the, the Robbie link to Gav. <laughs> no, he loves Robbie, which is why. I oh, love okay. Gav. So yeah. he. Okay, that's great then. So it'll be honeymoon slash yeah. retracing the footsteps of <laughs> Robbie Williams' oh, yeah. brief holiday to Jamaica. <laughs> I'm going to be Robbie, Gav will be Guy Chambers. <laughs> oh, I want to come. <laughs> I'll be Jonathan Wilkes. Maybe we'll just go to Jamaica. <laughs> I would love that. Okay. Start Patreon so we can... <laughs> and we can make like a travel documentary. <laughs> I really want to do this that. is a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Should we talk about his songs? Yes. Okay. So we've um we've got we've got we put together ten of Robbie's songs, um from across his career, which is huge, and all the songs that we just believe to be perfect, incredible. Yeah, whatever. and and tell a story about him. And tell a story about him. They're in no particular order. We just kind of slammed them down as we thought of them, but we both agreed that Candy had to be number one. It had to be number one. I am obsessed with Candy. Tell me the exact reasons why you think. Because it's the thing that you and I were shocked by last Mm. week on Mm -hmm. tour is the addictive quality. There is some sort of song science to that song that means that once you hit, once it finishes, you have to immediately listen to it again. So so I have, uh, after the Robbie documentary, I've watched it the first time with Gav before, the second time with you in Ireland. I just got into the habit of like putting on this is Robbie Williams yeah, on Spotify uh, while I was cooking. And uh, when Candy came up, I would just keep going back and it's just so like, good, back again, yeah. back again. And then I started playing it um, when we were hanging out. And it was just it just got around and around and around and around. You're right. It is like addictive, like Candy. Caroline had to go for a walk in Belfast, a cold morning walk, listening to Paul Simon as a palate cleanser. wash it out? <laughs> Do you know, I was re-listening to it this morning and I think it's a combo of the opening, which is those incredible horns, which are like really mm-hmm. uplifting. And if you listen to the melody of the beginning, it sounds like a playground chant. Yeah. 
and, it just gets loops in your head. And it's and it's also there's something about and I think maybe it's a like Robbie's a big he 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 thinks that he can't sing and I totally disagree with that. Me too. But there, there's. <laughs> I agree. Robbie, if you're listening, you can sing. You can sing. But like to go back to that uh, Alan Buxton interview, this thing where he keeps saying, like, I always knew I had no future. I was a working class boy, couldn't spell, couldn't add up, can't really sing, but I knew I had something about me kind of thing. It's like, you can sing. Your songs are good. And don't prostrate yourself for Alan Buxton's benefit. He has a lovely vibrato. He does. He really does. But I think he has developed this rhythm of singing that is kind of talk singing. And I can see why he emerged into the root box era because rapping just seemed like one up from what he was already doing anyway yeah and um but it's the i was there to witness candice's <laughs> in the business um but the more i listen to it and especially because of the kind of week we were having of like this bonkers job that i get to do with you sometimes of like ba- basically pretending like you're in a rock band when all you're doing is sitting on stage and talking about books mm. because the the way that audiences react to you on stage is just so it's just like the best girls in the world having the best nights of it their life. the best girls in the world. It is. It really is. It's, it's just the best part of my job, those live shows. They're amazing. And uh, I realised the more I was listening to it, and the more we were listening to it in the dressing room and going on stage, that it is a song about female show-offs. It is, yeah. And I think it's sort of meant to be a sort of a negative takedown of a certain kind of woman. But the melody is so uplifting that it feels like nothing more than a celebration. Yeah, totally. And the, the chorus lyrics, which are obsessed with, and I kept, every time that we would meet a new person in a new venue and they would tell me they don't like Robbie Williams, and I said, I would say to them, hey ho, there she goes, either a little too loud or, or a, a little, little too, too close. close. She's got a hurricane in the, in the back, back of, of her, her throat. throat. She, she thinks, thinks she's, she's made, made of candy. candy. I'm like, how is that not better than Robert Frost or <laughs> Philip Larkin? <laughs> like, how is that not poetry? <laughs> And also, I love that we went on such a deep dive of the meaning of the lyrics that we'd like assigned so much meaning to these to this like a celebration of female exhibitionism that we felt a little bit let down when Robbie made like a bawdy joke about a hurricane at the back of her throat, maybe being in reference to blowjobs. It's like, um, no, excuse me, no, it's not. <laughs> Robert Williams, no, it isn't. It's about being loud. Yeah. And being too loud and too close. Yeah. A little too loud and a little, little too, too close. close. Can I can I put forward my theory at yes. this point? At first I was doubtful, but the more you've talked to me about it, the more I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. Okay, so she thinks she's made of candy. Mm-hmm. June 2012. Let me take you back. <laughs> There's a little known show called The Only Way is Essex mm. that's on television. Gemma Collins, arguably a woman who has the largest hurricane at the back of her throat, mm-hmm. says to Arge, um, you ain't ever going to get this candy, poolside, Marbella. She hits her own bum. So that's June 2012. First she derobes in front of him. <laughs> First she derobes. <laughs> yeah, and then she's wearing a swimsuit. That whole energy yeah. is very much my sexual identity, I think. <laughs> anyway, and then I think it is October or November 2012, hmm. Robbie Will- Williams releases Candy. Is there some connective tissue between those two things? I think so, because as I we know so. from the documentary, he spent, uh, after the sort of run of albums, like Sing When You're Winning, all that kind of stuff, he did a long break, and he sort of talks about in that break, what he mostly did was eat Sensations Crisps and watch reality TV. Yeah, well, there we go. It makes total sense that he would be a Towie fan. And then here are a couple of other interesting things. Okay. <laughs> Your discovery about... We got so obsessed with this that I was like, 
on Gemma Collins's Wikipedia page looking for connections, wherein I realised her mother's maiden name was Williams. <laughs> Is that irrelevant? Maybe. Is it relevant? Possibly. <laughs> and I think Gemma Collins' dad worked in construction. I may have got that wrong. I need that verified. Okay. Well, in the song, her dad has been moving bricks to Brixton. I think it's a drugs reference, though. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. The theory still stands. It still stands. Um, the, the greatest achievement, obviously in that tour, I got paid an appearance fee. But uh, the greatest achievement from that is that so many people text me saying, all I can do is listen to Candy yeah. again and again. Lovely. Including the producers of our show who really didn't lo- like it and made it quite clear they didn't like it. And then by the end of the night, they were, they loved it. And that's what works about Candy. What's so interesting to me is how many people we met who don't like Robbie Williams. <laughs> yeah. And it struck me as, and I said at the beginning that, you know, sort of we don't really cover men that much on the podcast and maybe he is the first man that we've had a whole episode about um but obviously there's so much to think about and to read about the way female celebrity is so poisonous and so toxic particularly in this era but i do think male pop stars are uniquely disadvantaged when it comes to the pop sphere because they're in this weird trap which is that um, in order for pop music to be pop music, it has to be visual and it has to be everywhere. Mm. Men have such a limited field in terms of what they can do without the sort of like toxic masculinity lens that all of society is under coming for them. Mm. You can't wear makeup. You can't wear a dress. You can't be too feminine. You can't, yeah. be, you can't be too into the way you look because like the girls won't fancy you if you're even slightly feminine. Obviously, that's been kind of unwritten by Harry Styles in the last few years. And I think changing, changing gender norms... everywhere but um so you're in this trap of like people get bored of looking at you so you have to keep changing it up that's why female pop stars change their look and their hair for every Mm. uh album but male pop stars are sort of stuck so true they have to look kind of normal quote unquote for people to like believe them particularly when robbie's thing was he was a normal bloke from stoke he was a working class guy who loved football he was like that was very much like a part of his well, yeah. who he is, but also a part of his brand of like the cheeky chappy, the cheeky chappy. He washes his dick in the sink. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so my friend Ryan always says when he's trying to communicate to me that someone's a lad. He's like, you know, he washes his dick in the sink. Washes his dick in the sink. <laughs> oh God, I just am weak for those boys. Those horrible boys. I know. I love them. And um, we should also say as well that this is, I think, the first and only banger post Guy Chambers. Yeah. Because after Guy Chambers, his writing partner left, which was Escapology, Mm -hmm. which was kind of his last great album. Mm. um, This is the first song that I think feels like it's in the canon afterwards. And he wrote it with Gary Barlow. I know. And it was like, it feels like such a recent hit, but 2012 was over 10 years ago. Yeah. And it, yeah. In my head, it came out three years ago, you know? Yeah. I guess because it's so cheesy. Cheesiness never really dates because it always feels... Because of cheesy and old. But it's interesting as well that this song, as it's quite clear, I think is a great song, like a really, really good catchy pop song. Mm. But it is still so audibly missing the Guy Chambers quality. Yeah. It's kind of the lushness, I guess. It's the lushness. I I was listening to all those songs this morning and there's this like like timeless quality to those Mm. Guy Chambers songs that are like layered and rich and cinematic Mm, cinematic totally playful and tell a story yeah and they each every song has its every Guy Chambers song has its own identity Mm. but yet they all 
link up together on the album. It's like, so I'm literally explaining what an album is. Yeah. <laughs> there's some there's something in those Guy Chambers songs that is that is like a totally indefinable quality mm. that I think is only the alchemy of those two brains together. Yeah. And as much as I love candy, there is a kind of it does taste cheap. Yeah. Compared to something like Millennium, which feels like it could be a Diana Ross song, you know? Exactly. Because it's just, I don't know, it feels like you can sort of like feel the fabric of it between your fingers and it feels all rich and expensive, you know? Yeah, yeah. Next song on our list is Come Undone, which is off Escapology. Come Undone was the first time I understood what cocaine was, really, I think. My mum had to explain what razor blades and mirrors were. (laughs) A very cool cat. I was <laughs> <laughs> But like back to the escapology thing, it really because so this was the point where I started noticing Robbie Williams. I was twelve, and uh, my best friend Mags was obsessed with this album. Mm. And it was I remember it was this thing where like it was a place where preteen love and very adult love came together in a sense where because I remember every dad having it as the CD in his car my dad yeah. loves Escapology yes. it's like one of his favourite albums what is the dad quality of Escapology like so much of being 12 I remember just like being in a car with either my dad or someone else's dad and listening to Escapology yeah totally because there was something that was when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Really unusual about it for pop at the time. Like, the, like it, I think pop stars always struggle to grow up, um, especially when they're hitting the sort of mid to late 20s that's been around for a long time. They can either go the sex route, mm. which is just like, hey, everyone, you knew me as a kid and now I have sex, which is so many pop stars. Yeah. Very much what Harry Styles is doing. Yeah. Um, or there's this, there's something about escapology that just feels very different. It just feels like it's just somebody who's lived a real Epic. life feels epic yeah the even that that photograph on the front is just so iconic i would have that as a poster in my house i would have that framed like the videos are beautiful and come undone there's something i don't know what is it about that song well i suppose what's so sad that we know now is it's about intoxication of Mm. all kinds and about ruination and self-destruction yeah and at that point, he. This is the thing that I found most astonishing about that documentary. That he was clean for the majority of his mm. time as a famous person. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing that he managed not to pick up, not to relapse. Like he was clean basically from 
his first single as a solo artist. Yeah. Or even maybe as he was leaving Take That, that's when he went into I think a... he was 90s clean, though. <laughs> and 90s clean is different to 2023 clean. 2023 clean is that you, you don't have stimulants, you don't yeah. have a casual beer, whatever. 90s clean means there was one thing you were addicted to and it was Coke and you don't do Coke anymore. <laughs> but you still have a yeah. Corona. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's. I think there's obviously... There's like a depth of pain and experience to those lyrics that yeah. even though it's not explicitly said, you know that this is someone who has had those mornings and had been in those yeah, valleys of low. There's so much of it that gets to me. The like, For some reason, the, I pray when I'm coming down, you'll be asleep. Oh, I know. So I, tragic. Everyone who's lived a life has come down and everyone knows that the only solution for coming down is to like watch a lovely soft film with mm. your nearest person mm. and the idea that you could feel so low and still want to be alone and mm. still want to live in the sort of like psychic torture of your own brain and just be like oh god just stay asleep like mm. for some it really just it gets to me it's so self-loathing that song yeah i think it like keys into something like a this is the thing that i find so interesting about pop songs that like often often it's like these huge confessions that are being made within yeah. lyrics that are totally hidden by these melodies that you could that like when when pop stars have their big undoing mm. if you go back through their music often there are like clues everywhere they were telling us they the were whole telling time. us yeah and it's so he's telling us his biggest secret in this song which is like i kind of hate myself yeah i am scum i'm scum i'm your son <laughs> i come undone the i think and it's also it's one of this this legacy of Robbie songs that they very often refer to the act of songwriting itself. Yeah, that bridge is so epic to me. Mm. The write another ballad, mix it on a Tuesday. Oh yeah, and the shells by Saturday. It's a love song. We sing love song. He does like doing that because because that's a good line to take it to the bridge in strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really likes. He's very Brechtian. <laughs> We're going to listen back to this and be like, we got so carried away in there. Bell topped Brecht, a.k.a. Robbie Williams. Robbie Williams. <laughs> yeah, and, oh God, it just makes me want to roar that in a karaoke booth. Mm. And that That's is, a good karaoke song. All of Robbie's songs are a good karaoke song. I did Kids with Ryan at your At my hand! Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, it's a great one for two people, that yeah. one. Yeah, and maybe that is a sort of um, the advantage of... Uh, another reason why Taylor Swift is also a great person to do at karaoke, um, that their vocal range isn't huge. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I mean, he is, as you say, he's a lovely vibrato. And when he really like tilts his head back for a chorus, you really do feel it. Totally. But you can kind of get away with a Robbie Williams song at karaoke with just talking and shouting if yeah. you want to, you know? Yeah. Which is, it's not on our list, but a very clever thing that you said while we were away was the the reason that Angels is such a big song and will never die is because it sounds like Hey Jude. Mm. It has like a moment where English people can put their arms around each other exactly. at a festival, sway yeah. and just sing along. Yeah, I really noticed that, that Glastonbury footage mm. of him. Where he just doesn't even sing. I think it, there comes a point where he just stops singing the chorus of yeah. Angels. Yeah, why would you bother? Yeah. <laughs> How amazing must that feel? Why don't we get to do I it? Know. It's so boring that we have to do this job instead of being rock stars. I know. Make pithy comments. I don't want to make yeah. pithy comments. And hear a titter abound. I, you know? <laughs> I don't want a titter. I want everyone to sing. All- I think that's why <laughs> when we were doing Sentimental in the City, we were like, so we had so many catchphrases. Because we wanted people to sing them at us. Someone <laughs> came up to me at the signing at the Christmas um, 
Hatchard's yeah. event last night. And what they, they, they came up to me and she was like, said in a totally normal way, she's like, can you just make it out to Bryony and can you write cabs of bullshit? <laughs> I get lots of cabs of bullshits in the queue. Yeah. It's very Oh, nice. and I got another one saying, can you write We Love the Sesh? I was like, yeah, fine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So the next one is one that I was never that taken with mm. until I watched the documentary and I saw found out the real story about Robbie and Jerry. So this song is Eternity mm. that he wrote about Jerry and in particular this perfect summer that they had together for a few months Yeah, when they were both at the peak of their fame. And he says in the documentary it's the first time you see footage of him happy ever that of all the footage that you've seen. Mm. And, there's, and what's so weird about the Robbie and Jerry thing is because I remember being obsessed with it because yeah. I was obsessed with Jerry and Jerry was also like weirdly a bit of a sexual awakening for me when I was a young oh, person. Oh, 100%. And there Same. Was, and there's such a soul twin vibe with those two, I think, in terms of like how they metabolise fame, what people think about them, mm. the bands that they left, the betrayal yeah. of their fans, And the roles and, they played in those bands. Yeah, exactly. As being sort of the gobby one and yeah. like... I, and I think maybe Jerry always had accusations of being like, well, she's just sort of the sexy, chatty one. Mm. Mel C's the real voice. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it was yeah. always like, I remember reading obsessively Heat and Closer, trying to look at the, that pictures of those of that summer to work out what was going on. And they always just said that they were friends constantly. Their mm. thing is like, we're like brother and sister, we're like friends. And um, she, I remember him, her presenting him with his Brit Award and there was like, it, like everyone was so excited by that. Like what was the nature of this friendship of these two people that are so beautiful and so charming mm. and so ostensibly like seemingly broken. Mm. Um, and then when I interviewed Jerry Halliwell mm. a few months ago, I wanted to ask her personal questions, obviously, but I knew that first of all, she had... She, there was no reason why she should answer personal questions mm. about personal life when we were there to talk about something else, and um, you know I just didn't I didn't want to be rude. So the way that I got round it is I said to her, I spent the whole day at her house, and I said I'm going to ask you questions that my ten year old self would ask you. Very cheeky way of asking yeah. the most imprudent questions you can think of. Yeah, and I was like, you don't have. Maybe to you ask. are a journalist. <laughs> Maybe I am. I was like, you don't have to answer them and I won't even put in the copy that I asked them if mm -hmm. you don't. And the first one I said was, is Robbie Williams a good kisser? Mm -hmm. And her face just fat. She looked really, really like shocked that I'd asked that because mm. I was just waiting for her to say, no, we're just really good friends. Yeah. And she just said in a halting voice, he's got a documentary coming out. I think you'll find out everything you need to know from that. And she, from what you saw, she didn't seem too pleased about said documentary. I said, I said, I think she seemed like, I think she seemed like this is a very natural thing. I think she seems like she has, Jerry is another person who has so survived something, I think. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in our interview, I kept persuading her of that. And she kept telling me, I've had a nice life, don't worry. But I kept yeah. saying like, it. but what you went through with the media in the 90s and noughties is horrendous. And she was just like, worst things happen to people. She's really mm -hmm. philosophized it to find gratitude the other side. I believe side. she said at one point... There's been worse times to be famous, and you were like, like when? And you were like, she was like Henry VIII. <laughs> She's like, I could have been Anne Boleyn. Do you know what I mean? I was like, I, I kind of know what you mean. In that the words make sense, but I don't really know. That's relevant to your career, anyway. Um, 
she, I think it seemed like, you know, if we were to watch footage of ourselves 20 years ago, mm. that would feel like a totally different person in a different life. And probably we wouldn't want that on someone's yeah. document. I, I totally understand I that. totally understand that because she is a very private person, yeah. much to my chagrin. <laughs> yeah, she is. And she's very clever with it. She's very yeah. diplomatic with what she gives you. Yes. And, and, she, and also, you know... The Spice Girls were two and a half years of her life 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Like, and, you know, it's, it's totally natural. She wants to move on and focus on other projects and be a grown up. Um, but if I would, I would pay thousands of pounds for, for some reason, any loser I dated when I was 20 or whatever, to have a documentary come out about him because for some reason he's famous. And in that documentary, I am in this sort of sun drenched, like wearing a wet bikini, my hair drying down my back, looking like a mermaid, driving a jeep, sort of philosophizing on the like meaning of life while there's like freckles dancing on my shoulders. She comes across so well. Yeah, it? yeah. In fact, Caroline was trying to persuade me to get in touch with her <laughs> while we were watching it. I was like, "Come on, give her a text <laughs> to just say I want you to know that like you come across as the best, best, best human being." She yeah. seems like such a good friend in it. She yeah. seems chill and sweet. And funny and beautiful. That bit when they're like lying on a lilo together. It's clearly like three o'clock in the morning and they're in their little pool or whatever in their villa. And they're pretending to be like an old British married couple. Seaside called like, couple, yeah. Like Vic and Reg or something. Yeah. And they're just having such a laugh together. And you can just so tell that their brains are just joined up. Totally. It's so lovely. And now that's why I just am weak for this song. I know. Because it's, I think it's so much like you said about that footage of them together. It's very like Wendy and the Lost Boys. Yeah. There's something totally. so innocent about that relationship yeah. and their time together and what they've been to in their like shared yeah. experiences. And the song is so simple. It's such a sweet love song. You were there for summer dreaming. Yeah. And you gave me what I need. And I hope you find your freedom for eternity. It's like... It's like what you would say about your best friend when you were 10. You know, it's yeah. so childlike and simple and sweet. It's sentiment. And I just it's so it's interesting. Be- I've actually got, I've just given myself these books there. I just think it's such a beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah. And it's just like there's something about the way they always insist on, or he always insists in the documentary of like, she was my friend. And I think that is such... That's not to deliberately obscure the idea they were sleeping together, they were in a mm. relationship. It's more that this is somebody who has had sex and had physical relationships with probably hundreds of people yeah. at this point. Yeah. And and trying to like really make the audience understand, ascending her past that point of being like, it really like yes, of course, but like we it wasn't about that. This was yeah. like like someone who I was really joined up with, you know? Yeah. And the idea that you can love someone that much and have such a perfect time and know that it will only exist in the kind of hermetically sealed Summer. vacuum really yeah breaks my heart and the fact that they know that the media attention of it yeah was the thing that threatened it and then ultimately the thing that ended it because some fucking pap told robbie that jerry yeah. had been selling uh, stories on them or selling or telling them yeah. where to go follow them and he says he now absolutely doesn't believe that was true yeah. but you're obviously in such a state of heightened paranoia at totally. that point, that that's what broke them up. You know, I remember watching the Jade Goody documentary. Tragically, that's what broke up her and her husband, that they both thought that the other one was selling stories on them and they weren't. Because nobody could have known at that time that, like, people's phones were being yeah. tapped. It was like, and I'm sure there's even darker stuff going on now that we don't know about. But yeah. at that time, that was like such a, 
menacing revelation. And like, if any of those people were to say that, like Robbie Williams at that time or Jay Goody at that time, I think my phone is being tapped. They would sound fucking. They'd sound nuts. insane. Yeah. It sound completely conspiracy theorist. Yeah. But it was truly happening. Yeah. How frightening is that? Yeah. I also thought one of the most frightening parts of the documentary was um, when they are being stalked by the press towards the end of that summer in Greece. And uh, is it Greece they go to? They go bats all around. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and they're on some beach and they're trying to get back into their car. And like Jerry's sort of barefoot in a bikini and wearing a wrap and trying to get away from the press. Mm. And it just, I've obviously seen so many pieces of footage over the years of famous people trying to escape the press. But it's always like in urban environments. Mm. The idea that you could be barefoot and mostly naked yeah. and these strangers are just crowding in on you felt the most... Like, I was getting heart palpitations yeah. watching it. The idea of like your, your like bare feet slipping on the sand and you kind of can't get purchased to scurry away. Yeah, horrible. It's like a nightmare. Yeah. <sighs> Don't like that at all. <laughs> Don't like that at Don't all. get any more famous than you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen, don't worry. Um, but... We love the song that came out of it. Yeah. Next song. All right. <laughs> this is where you and I might divide. It's Mr. Bojangles. <laughs> Swing When You're Winning. Okay, so Swing When You're Winning was, I think, the most important album of my teens. Mm-hmm. Joint with, like, Blood on the Tracks and Blue right. by Joni Mitchell. Okay. It's like, that's where Swing When You're Winning is mm-hmm. up there for me. I... The the way that I got into music as a young person, I've always been a music obsessive. But before the Spice Girls, before anything, it yeah. was Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. That was how I discovered my love for music. And I continued that love. And I do continue that love with like that era of jazz singers. So on my folders at school... I printed off pictures of like Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and, and and sellotaped them onto my ring binder folders and in a gold pen would write out lyrics of their songs to like decorate my folders. So cute. So when Robbie Williams comes out with a song of covering all those songs, that mm. comes out with an album of covering all those songs that I've been listening to since I was like seven, yeah. it felt like he had read my mind. Oh. And he was like, like sending a message only to sending you. a message to me of like we're the same and we understand each other and it's okay to like all these songs that none of your friends listen to like it's okay to listen to the Rat Pack it's okay to listen yeah. to Ella Fitzgerald and I used to go around the suburbs my friend Farley lived about an hour from me on on a bike and I used to just cycle round listening to it on my discman I'd wear my gap hoodie with the discman in the pocket oh my god the discman being rattled around yes. as well and you had to stop it every 10 minutes to like reset yeah yeah it's like my strongest teenage memory is yeah. cycling back and forth to follies listening to swing when you're winning and as an adult when I look back on that album I just think he's so fucking smart for doing that album which mm. obviously the enemy hated mm-hmm. and loads of people hated and I don't think it was reviewed very well because what he is saying is that in that is he is involving himself in a tradition of entertainment mm. and he is a rat pack member that is a direct comparison when mm. you think about who Dean Martin was or who Frank yeah. Sinatra was men who were just as known for their like the escapades of their love life and their and the yes. way that they broke the rules in their personal life and that their sort of mischief as well as their singing um and their like the playfulness in their songs he did that he was very comic in his lyrics Robbie Williams Frank Sinatra did the same with some of those songs the way Dean Martin would speak when he would do those Vegas shows all the patter in between their songs mm. he's like 
he's like aligning himself in a type of entertainment that just makes total sense for explaining who he is. One God, you've really taught me around, actually. <laughs> but the reason we chose Bojangles, it's the most embarrassing of all it's of them. It's so embarrassing. And it's also, it just makes me cringe. So I, I, I do think that like, he also proves that the kind of, the skill of his vocal arrangements in this which is obviously a big bugbear for him and a big like thing that lives in his head that I don't think lives in other people's heads no. really that he can't sing because his voice is so sort of velvety and chocolatey and you feel yeah. like when you're listening to it you should be like buying almonds and Harrods at Christmas do you yes. know what I mean? <laughs> you know um, but there is something about <laughs> it's like okay this this song that was sung by like Nina Simone and Ella Fitzgerald that is specifically about the perils of being a black entertainer <laughs> you're going to do like a vaguely Uncle Tom voice during it and make so much money off of it as a white artist it's so tone deaf the voice the voice is hard to defend <laughs> halfway through the voice he does that's harder to defend but anyway that's why I will always love Swing when you're winning and do you know what else I love is that there's this random cast of characters on Swing when you're winning yes. I love there's Rupert Everett there's Jane Horrocks I think there's my old mate Jonathan Wilkes <laughs> I am Jonathan Wilkes do you want to do a swing album together? <laughs> I think it would be good. Me too. Okay, I think yeah. that's all we need to say okay, about swing when you're winning. Um, I do remember my parents had it, and that was a moment where I was like, "That," because I've always loved. It's interesting that where you and I diverge. I've always loved old movies and would mm. sit and like watch my dad's VHS tapes of like old movies for hours, but had no patience whatsoever with the music. Yeah, it was always the bit I would be fast forwarding. Really. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I remember feeling it was just like, yeah, my dad's thing. Yeah. Which was weird the way he would bounce between being a parent's pop star and being a child's pop star. Yes. During this era. But that's kind of probably why he sold so many records. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say at the beginning. Like to to be that universal. Yeah. And to feel like you're you want to dance or you want to sing along to, to music when you're an eight year old or a fifty year old. Yeah. That doesn't happen by accident. That's like such a it's such a specific skill to have. This is something that we were talking about last week, which was um, the sort of difference of how, you know, you ingested media when you were in our generation and probably generations prior as well of like, generally there was one TV in the house or maybe two, maybe your parents also had a TV in their bedroom. So mostly everyone was kind of watching the same TV if they were watching it at all. Yeah. And there was kind of a stack of maybe... 10 to 25 CDs depending on how into music your parents were and and whatever books were on the shelf and because you had no sense of selection when you were a kid your cultural life was just made up of the stuff that was around exactly and that I think you can trace back so much of like yeah why I still like go to jazz clubs when I go to a, like on a city break I will yeah. still look up for jazz clubs we can probably trace that back to me being seven years old and just picking up yeah. Songs for Swinging Lovers by Frank Sinatra it is that random it's so gorgeous it's I think. so gorgeous we had a family karaoke night last time we were all home and it was so nice and like my oldest brother who's almost 40 and my mum did a duet of Billy Joel's for the longest time oh and I was like, that was the that was the first tape we had in our house. Yeah. It was Billy Joel. And like all of us are obsessed with Billy Joel because of it. And I just find that so lovely. That, I like, hope that can exist for our children. Yeah, I don't know if it will in the same way. Like I always remember you saying, I know I got really fixed on this, but it really stuck in my head that yeah. you and your childhood best friend Mags were obsessed with Jeffrey Archer. Obsessed with Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> Obviously because of that picking it up around the house. Yeah, thing. yeah. 
He was there on the signing table next to me last night. And Did you tell him that I'm a fan? No, I didn't. I couldn't get to him. <laughs> Another overdog I love, Jeffrey Archer. <laughs> I couldn't get to him. He had such a long queue, but I really wanted... I can't believe he's still doing the signings. My God. Not only is he doing the signings, it was like Beatlemania for Jeffrey Archer and Hatchards last night. Wow. I wish I'd got to him to get a I picture I can't believe... Oh, my God. Yeah, Cain and Abel. He looked in fine fettle. Really? He did, yeah. Robbie Williams' music via Jeffrey Archer. What have we got next? <laughs> I'm always just waiting for somebody to come on this podcast to do Cain and Abel by Jeffrey Archer, but nobody ever does. Um, the, uh, next one on the list is, oh God, we need to speed up. Uh, Rock DJ. 2000, sing when you're winning. Well, Rock DJ, we've just heard, actually, from yes. an unnamed source. The Rock DJ had a... Quite a story to it. And had a Barry White sample underneath it. Yeah. So um, that that background music, the mode, mode, mode yeah. kind of thing, is a Barry White sample. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's obviously Barry White now yeah, you say it. totally. It's so and, and again, it gets to the sort of like the lushness and the references that are always happening yeah. in the Guy Chambers era that you just don't get once it moves on. Um, so <sighs> Robbie made that song with the head. It's covered in the documentary of like, this was the song that wouldn't die. And it's quite yeah. funny where like Guy Chambers is like, I can't believe I'm writing out the lyrics to Rock DJ again. And he um, Robbie describes it as being... Um, what is oh, a consider yourself. Consider yourself. Wow. Yeah. It's, when you hear that, you can't unhear it. But um, it is a song about being an entertainer, isn't it? It's about, yeah. Yeah. Which he loves talking about. Yeah. It's his yeah. favourite subject. Yeah. About him being famous yeah. and entertaining people. Yeah. Um, uh, but he had made this song with two friends from Stoke on Trent who uh, didn't get a songwriting credit and kind of this kind of maybe rumblings that Guy Chambers sort of took over at the last minute kind of thing and they just sort of didn't get the royalties for it. That Robbie had felt really bad about this for years and that much later on he made Rootbox with those two friends who were in a band called Sound 5. I can't mm. remember their names. Kelsey and something. Kelvin mm. and something else. Mm. And uh, yeah, so... Uh, Rudebox was his collaboration with them and his way of being like here's here's something we can do together that you can get full credit for and <laughs> one has to wonder whether they wanted that credit such a good little bit of intel I know I love it anyway what can we say about Rock DJ other than it's just it's fucking mad. It's such a banger and it's such a song about entertainment even the like call and responsive yeah. can I kick it yes so good and that like a uh, Lord reference in a song last fucking year did she yeah yeah She her last album Solar Power there's a song um, I can't remember what it's called exactly I'm kinda like a prettier genius I think it was called Solar Power where uh, she talks about how she in winter nobody can get a hold of her and she basically has SAD or whatever but in the summer she's like can I kick it yeah I can. Wow. Like, and it's like, oh, wow. And a New Zealand artist who's like 28 is referencing Rock DJ oh, in the I song. Oh, I Robbie knows that. <laughs> he would love that. He would really love that, yeah. I think. Yeah. And obviously we have to just briefly mention that video, which I know you found too scary when you were little. So scary. I think that's the two-year age gap between you and I is that I was petrified of that video and ran out of the room whenever it was on. I found it horny. While him stripping down into his weird skin suit. His latex skin yeah. suit. So it's and I, and also like the what we now know that metaphor is is it's about him saying that people just keep trying to take yeah. more and more and more from him. Yeah. And undress him and undress him and get more and more pieces from him and then the last moment is him literally 
ripping his skin off and being yeah. like, take it if you need it. So good. It's so fucking it's so, clever. It's so clever. It's both very obvious and very clever. Yeah. You know? And like But this is what I mean, it is so obvious, but then why has no one done it before? Like yeah. that's what I think people feel about Robbie. And it's like, if it's so obvious these songs and it's so obvious yeah. these videos, then why is he the first person that did it? <laughs> why did he get that idea before any of the rest of you fuckers at the NME? <laughs> Slash LRB, joking. Okay. <laughs> I love him. Uh, and then we're on to Millennium. My favourite Robbie Williams song. Why is it your favourite song? I think um, I think it's offbeat. And mm. I think it's... Um, when when I read about all the work that went into that song, I think it just like distills how clever he and Guy were mm. as a duo. Because they obviously, they sampled the Nancy Sinatra song, You Only Live Twice. Is that the sample on that? Yeah. And it's obviously got that cinematic Bond feel. They put it in a different key. They put it in a really strange key. I think it's... It's, it's a Bond song. Yeah. It so feels like a Bond song. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's um, it's in D flat major, I think. It's mm. in some random key that I don't understand, but, it, but mm. it's like an offbeat key for a pop song to mm. be in. They decided to put a football chant in the middle of the song, yeah. which is the bridge of come and have a go if you think you are hard enough. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's something so smart about and he guy chambers has said that and i really do remember this from my childhood that me, the word millennium was everywhere yes it was so there was in, a willennium it was the a willennium with will smith will smith's willennium oh that was God, the name of his album it was <laughs> but it's a smart word to attach yourself with because mm. now whenever that whenever you're watching a documentary about that period of history mm. often that song will play over the top it's um he said it's like yeah in the same way that like brexit was a word that was in our atmosphere for yeah. two years this was a word that was just everywhere and the fact that there are references like they talk, he talks about liposuction in it there's like yeah. these references to the time and to align himself so closely with a, ch- a moment in history a change of yeah. a century he's like making himself an anthem for a time it's so clever and yet so destructive. Yeah. Because I remember reading this quote about It Girls recently where somebody said that the tragedy of It Girls is that they, they exist to sum up the moment and all moments must pass. Yes, 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 yeah. so true. And Millennium being this peak moment of like, and I remember, and the, the bit I did sympathise with with Alan Buxton on the podcast was him sort of saying like, I remember so clearly this time of like, you know, my career was taking off, I was falling in love with my like soon to be wife and then everywhere you looked was Robbie Williams. Yeah. I think we kind of can't overstay and we talked about this a bit in the Kylie Minogue episode of um, the the choicelessness that was evident in sort of 2000s mass media. If you think of like the 20th century as being the sort of birth of modern fame and like this dissemination of images and, and sound everywhere, radios everywhere, screens everywhere, pictures everywhere, mm. it hits this point in the 2000s, I think, where... Everywhere you go, there's a screen. Everywhere you go, there's a mu- there's music playing. Mm. It's every and you have no choice. Yeah, and I do think that is part of the reason why fame gets so nasty around this period is because yeah. there's more of it everywhere, and, and you have no choice. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree in terms of like understanding what that hatred towards him was. Yeah, 
There's a bit in the documentary where Sophie Ellis Bexter, who I'm sure feels very embarrassed by this now, yeah. is on some like cool music show and she's just like 20 years old or something and she's just like, I just think he's... I think she calls him like disgusting or something. Yeah, it's really strong. It's, yeah, which of course is what you would say if you were 20 years old of course. on a music show. You're just coming up and like Robbie Williams just feels like this unkillable beast that's yeah. like on billboards, on the radio, on TV. And she's just like, she's not talking about Robbie Williams, the individual. She's talking about this lumbering media beast that she can't avoid. Yeah. And and his fandom around it. Yeah. The thing that I think was clever about Millennium is that it so sums up a moment in time, as you said. But the reason why I think it feels timeless is that, that, that the Nancy Sinatra sample. Yeah. Again, I just think that's the cleverness of him. That it's like, yes, that sum that summarizes a moment in time when Robbie was at his peak mm. and culture was at a very specific moment. But it also does sound like a Diana Ross song, as you say. Yeah, and I guess that that thing of like, I mean, it's heavily implied in the documentary that him him and Guy Chambers split because in part because I think Guy Chambers was very much an older brother maybe a slight bullish character to have around the recording studio and maybe Robbie wanted to feel a sense of freedom but also the sense that people didn't believe that Robbie was capable of making good music and it's not that he's not capable of making good music it's just their music simply sounds better together you know and not your ego at a certain point not being able to handle that yeah you know yeah Is is it not a top banger for you Millennium? I appreciate it a lot. And again, it makes me feel like I'm buying almonds and harrods. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I don't feeling. rock out to it. Yeah. In the same way I would till I come undone. Yeah. Or indeed the next song, which is Let Me Entertain You. That song, it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of incredible that it's a Robbie Williams song in a way, mm. because it just feels like such a stadium rock anthem. Mm. Like it feels like it could it should be like a U2 song. It is so U2y. Yeah. There's this weird uh, sort of con- convergence of Robbie in that he feels like at a certain point between sort of 1999 and 2002, like a Venn diagram between Coldplay and U2. Mm. Like the sort of like the talk singy sort of like if you think of Feel, for example, to me that feels totally like the Brian Eno era of Coldplay it really like does yeah the, the atmospheric piano the cinema the coolness, of it all the yeah. coolness the feelings kind of rioting through the coolness yeah um, and then the sort of the very Bono effect of like sunglasses on stage like this is bigger than big yeah. you're, you're on another planet with me here yeah like it's it's so interesting because the the the, the essential sort of the hammy kind of robbiness always stays the same but the musical references shift kind of I would say between the the points I think that are hit the most are probably Oasis and kind of Britpop in general which I think is very uncommon done and also strong strong it's very and and also um, uh, what was the other one that I was thinking is so supreme that has that quality as well totally on supreme as well uh coldplay youtube is basically just hitting whatever is the most popular thing at the time and again just being a shameless populist you know yeah yeah shameless populist and it's all like in this delicious big creamy layer cake yeah yeah and even like rude box which came out in 2006 which is obviously the worst song ever written but, (laughs) (laughs) but um it's it's feeding on this very specific moment that I was only reminded of by listening to another podcast the other day of 2006 being this weird heyday of white people doing embarrassing yet skillful raps. Yeah. Like like Andy Samberg and Lowly Island, the I'm on a boat era. Yes. Natalie Portman rapping on SNL. Yeah. That being like 
it being a real that moment was a for w- that. Real moment for that. Yeah, it was like post Eminem. Yeah. kind of thing of like, hey, maybe anyone can do I this. I think Eminem gave all of us very big ideas about our yeah. skills. <laughs> In some ways... We have all fallen flat in a karaoke booth with, without me. Oh my God. We really, it really does equal us all, doesn't it? It does. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because um, Robbie is kind of the the safe Eminem. He's the soft play M&M mm. in a way. <laughs> he is the soft play M&M. Yeah. And they both have that thing of um, talking about quite grown up naughty things. Yeah. But having these baby faces. Yes, the big eyes. The big eyes and the little yeah. retrousse noses. Yeah. Which I think is the absolute key. Uh, do Harry Styles has it as well. It's the, yeah. And Elvis had it. It's the absolute key to getting yeah. teenage girls on side. It's like, can you be a naughty, sexy big boy in your music yes but can you look like a really pretty kind of like a little girl little girl that yeah is not threatening that feels like yeah like safe totally yeah that's the key for yeah. a, like a, 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 a popular sorry yeah that's the key for um someone that teenage girls will love i think it's so funny with Eminem because I do think that all the time that he does in those early videos everything is so bright and so colourful mm. and he's got that white blonde hair and these big, big blue it's eyes. Like Disney. He, yeah. yeah. He's like a Disney princess. Yeah, he is. We <laughs> <laughs> foul Disney princess. Um, we have to start rattling to them because we're running out of time. Uh, strong. Strong. Oh God, I love Strong. I think Strong is such an interesting uh, song in the parable of Robbie Williams because... I think it's his version of Help by the Beatles. I remember mm. watching a Beatles documentary that I took you to. <laughs> <laughs> Which made it into your book, by the way. I, know I haven't even talked to you about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where Andy drags his ex girlfriend. To go watch a Beatles documentary in, in Greece. Greece. Which is what you did um, to me. But when. And it was about when they were touring, when they mm. were recording albums and touring at the same time in the first years of their fame. And do you remember that bit where John Lennon talks about help was with was them saying like we're not coping so and then when you watch footage of early Beatles singing help they look like there's like terror in his eyes when he's singing it it's about him not being able to cope with the fame and the relentlessness of the tour schedule yeah so there is a cry for help and then when I interviewed Jerry Halliwell she told me that when she was on tour they she wrote stop the lyrics for stop she was lying in a hotel bed (gasps) it is her help and it's her help and I remember saying that to her I was like this feels like this is something that happens with pop star who were just catapulted so quickly and it's always on like that second album Robbie wrote the lyrics to this when he was on tour in Germany in a hotel room you think that I'm strong you're wrong and he said it was to his fans basically yeah because he wasn't coping with being mobbed and he felt like he was being dehumanized yeah and i just am so interested in these pop songs that are these big bangers that we sing along to that when we look back retrospectively it was them begging us to listen to them because yeah. they're in trouble and we never do we never do we never do oh it's so sad i love that song that's it's my gorgeous. second favorite yeah it's really funny, the lyrics. Oh, I want to look at them now, but... Early morning when I wake up, I look like Kiss, but without the makeup. And that's a pretty good line. To take, take us to, to the, the bridge. bridge. Yeah. My breath smells like a thousand fags. <laughs> and when I'm drunk, I dance like my dad. I'm starting to dress a bit like him. Oh, it's so oh, it's good. so good. Yeah, love strong. Oh, there's something very horny about it as well. 
<laughs> Which yeah. I know is the, the exact opposite effect it's supposed to have. It's like, yeah, I want to kiss someone who says like a thousand facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I fancy him the most in that song, I think. Yeah. Robbie, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, then we got Feel. Which I would say, if my hands were ever in my pants about Robbie Williams, it was over Feel. And the video. Because I was such a horse girl. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I heard the story about it. I'm not sure if it's true, but I hope it is. Daryl Hannah is in that beautiful video and it does yeah. feel like it is like cinema or like taken from a movie almost. Um, and apparently Daryl Hannah only agreed to be in the video because she thought it was a Robin Williams picture. <laughs> Which I find so funny. There was a letter miss- missed off in the email <laughs> with the agent. That's so I mean, you know good. how like really famous people like obviously Ro- uh, Robbie always goes by Rob to his friends. Yeah. And like maybe maybe Robin goes by Robbie. In his... I love that. That's like um you know when David Bowie did that insane um Christmas duet with Bing Crosby. Oh, I don't know that. Little drummer boy. Oh, yes, I do yeah. know that. And yeah. there's a really weird music video where he yeah. goes into Brit Bing Crosby's house and he pretends that they're neighbours. It's really strange, the whole thing. And apparently that was like in his famous period of like total memory blackout. Like that entire... <laughs> Like when he signed up to do that and performed Little Drummer Boy with Bing Crosby in a pretend house pretending they're neighbours, that was when he had literally no memories. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Feels like maybe this is what Daryl Hannah's memory blackout years were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, then I've added the very end because I noticed you didn't add it. It was Supreme. Yeah, so why do you love Supreme I so much? I love Supreme. I love um, the way it references and samples I Will Survive. Oh my God, I didn't realise. That music in the background, the dun 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 dun, dun that thing. Oh my God, of course. And then even the bridge is, you must survive. And it's like, it, it feels like that kind of ice dancing music yeah. that goes to it. I just love it. And again, I think it's how you respond to Millennium. I, I respond to Supreme yeah. in that it does feel like lush, expensive, thick fabric. Yeah, it really does. And it really wakes up in me how cheap pop music does feel by comparison now. It is it is a totally unique quality these years of the Robbie songs. Yeah. And that's maybe why they were good for teenage girls and they were good for dads. Yeah. There's something in there for everyone. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a high quality to it. Yeah, everything about it just feels very considered and there's yeah. layers on top of it. And I also love that video so much. I think he's actually at his most gorgeous in that video when mm. he's being the uh, famous race car driver. He is so gorgeous. Yeah. yeah I could, he kind of still takes my breath. Like when I look back at that footage of him in his 20s, yeah. it still slightly takes my breath away. I, I feel like a 13-year-old again. <laughs> Hand goes straight in the pants. He's <laughs> so disgusting. So disgusting. Um, and... Uh, that's that was kind of our rundown. Yeah, I see you've added here ten A Rude Box. <laughs> well, I just thought it was interesting about Rude Box that even though it's the song that everyone hates the most, it's the song that he still upholds as like the best song he's ever written. I just think that's yeah. so interesting in that. I find it lovely that like it would be so easy for him to say at this point. Oh yeah, that's my memory blackout. I don't really know what yeah. was going on there. <laughs> But in the documentary, he's like, yeah, like my instincts were clearly wrong with how mm. how people respond to me. And to be and the thing that really chilled me the most, especially as I'm somebody who's writing a book at the moment that I have been working kind of on and off for years. Yeah. It's a YA book. I have 
totally lost confidence with it. I've totally lost sense of instinct with it. And the idea that you can have an instinct for what people want all the way through and then you can have this giant sort of white elephant misstep yeah. and after that your confidence is so, so shot that you kind of disappear because you have no... You're, you're like, your taste and what you like is so out of step with what everybody mm. wants. Mm. And that is such a frightening It's tale. really scary. Yeah. I wonder if people around him were, were warning him. Because I imagine, it seems like he was so convinced that this was... The future. The future. And I also wonder how much of it is about... He talks a lot about it being the kind of music that the him, his boys at home used to listen to. Yeah. And I do wonder, like... I remember I interviewed Jack O'Connell, the actor, mm. and he said... And he'd found, like, fame and fortune. And I asked him what he spent his new wealth on. And he was like, what's so interesting is, like, everything that I buy now is what I would have bought mm. when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Like, I've made all this money and I could, like, be at Cartier or whatever, but yeah. I just want to buy cool trainers. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something of that in this song with Robbie, that he's he's kind of, like, just harking back to the music that he loved when he was a kid. Yeah, and generally those instincts to do that are very sound, I think. Yeah. Because there's something very universal. Like, I find in my work, the further back I go, the more universal and more specific it gets kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, Um And for that to blow up in your face so badly and that bit where he's like in Prague or something oh, at a fan awful. event he's like you may you may not like it at first <laughs> that's like when you're telling an anecdote and you're like look there's a very long winded way to this anecdote but just stick with it stick with it because, because the payoff you, is unbelievable it never is <laughs> there's one bit where he says shake it like you just won the Special Olympics it's really bad. It's really it's Robbie. If you're listening, we're, we're I sorry. worship you, but it was so bad. But I don't think that Adam Buxton should have written a joke one and played it to him on the podcast interview. Nasty man. <laughs> <laughs> so you can tell I'm still hoping to get an invite on the Adam Buxton. Yeah, I, I know I never will. So you <laughs> I very never well will. Might. They pitch every fucking time I have something out. I never will. You are getting on that podcast, absolutely. No, I'm not cool enough. I miss Robbie. Oh. <laughs> if you do get on, will you promise to bring up Robbie? I will, um, I will. I did actually... I think I should tell you this. What? I did actually email Adam about it. What? <laughs> how did this not come up? I don't know how I forgot to take... Because I occasionally... Adam was... was uh, He was on the high-low once he did like a really... Yeah. He, we tried to... I can't remember why. We tried to get him to do a message for our... Um, our 100th episode or something anyway I occasionally email him and I always say you don't need to reply just to tell him about how when he, when he's done an episode yeah. that I love because I just know with the relentlessness and of, how, how frequently does he email back oh like he always send a nice like, like polite response receipt of interest yeah I think yeah. he's probably like why is this woman who I've never met like still yeah. but but I do I do think like when you're doing that that when you're in the podcast cycle I remember it so well you know what it is it's like a huge amount of work mm-hmm. and often the only time you hear from people is when they're angry with you so mm-hmm. I always just think it's important like when the high-low ended I definitely had forgotten that there was this huge swathe of people who were just politely and quietly listening to it every yeah, week yeah. who weren't emailing me and it was a big shock to Pandora and I mm. actually because we were hearing so much from people who weren't happy with us that we forgot I remember about that, this huge that group time of people. it was like people were treating you like you were like errand MPs who like yeah it was rough hadn't cleared the like tree from the middle of their road being it like was. I have sent many letters <laughs> and no one from your office has deigned to responded that but your take on the Grazia article last week was very unnuanced 
and exposed your immense privilege, I believe. In this podcast, I have not paid for and is free. I'm going to piss <laughs> Think of the power you hold in the, in the elected <laughs> office in which you sit. That was the Hilo fun. fans were demented. My fans are gorgeous. <laughs> but yes, there were many quiet, lovely people. Yeah, so I just occasionally will search Adam and he's very polite back. And I remember saying to him about the Robbie Williams one, I was like, because I really enjoyed it when I first listened to it. I just felt really sick throughout and I felt really upset for him. And I said I really yeah. over-related to Robbie in it because yeah. I felt like he was trying so desperate to show you that he was self-aware and that he was cool. Mm. And also, like, as mean as Adam is on that episode, like, that is a horrible way to be ambushed. If he really doesn't like Robbie Williams or his music mm -hmm. and he d has no interest in kind of... But he also owns that platform, so he could have just he said have no. Had him on, yeah. But it was like, I can imagine being quite backed in a corner in that interview where it's like, if I, if I were, like, expressing my bald need for his approval yeah i can imagine that's not a totally relaxed conversation <laughs> do you know what i mean i think you're being very nice yes yeah the way i listened to it i think was more like it sounds like somebody who wants to have the most famous person like the most famous pop star of his time on because mm. of what it will do doesn't really like him and doesn't want anybody to think that they I like him i think that's it he didn't want to think yeah yeah i think podcasts are always at the worst when you can feel that there's unseen masses in the room with the recorders yeah. you know yeah any art is worse when yeah and i just said call podcast an art <laughs> <laughs> any art is worse when you're speaking to pe invisible people who aren't in the room exactly you know? that yeah so anyway, Adam, I still would love to come. So on anyway, you emailed him and you said, <laughs> and that's what I said to him. You said, I said uh, I, I overrelated to Robbie, and I yeah. found it like really uncomfortable that he so obviously was trying yeah. to win your approval. I can't remember what he said back, so this is sort of non anecdote. Oh. But mm -hmm. I feel like I should put that on the record. Okay. But as I said, I think what's difficult in that is like it, it that conversation is so illustrative of how impossible it is in that context to delineate between who's punching up and who's punching down. I would yeah. say that he's punching down. Yeah, he a... would say he's punching up. up. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. I don't know if I believe in any of that anymore. Yeah. I don't think, I think the punching up, punching down conversation is one that we introduced a few years ago as this like delineation of who we get to be cruel to mm. as if like some people, and yeah, yes, of course, if like, fucking Exxon Mobile or whatever are polluting the ocean. It's like, I think we can make a crack at the CEO about that. But I think it's this weird way of putting laws on willful cruelty when we should probably just not be cruel. I totally agree. <laughs> make people you. answer for their sins, for sure. But like just being a nasty little bitch about people. Yeah. But maybe I'm punching down Adam Buxton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just, I just, I'm just really over the idea that just because somebody is famous and rich that they are also without feelings and that that fame isn't harming them on Me some too, level. and that's why we will always have the Overdog Club. The overdog. If you would like to join and submit an Overdog that Caroline and I should defend you like they're our rescue dog that needs protecting. You always solicit for emails while on my podcast, <laughs> not realising that I'll be the ones receiving the emails and that really stresses me out. <laughs> Residual Hilo days coming out there. <laughs> anyway, Dali, thank you for coming on yet again to talk about yet more bollocks. You um, are my love supreme. I'm so late for my next meeting. <laughs> I love you, bye. Bye. <laughs>
Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com